So uh, I come from a family of three kids. I have a family of five kids, and there is lots of conflict. There's lots of love, lots of good, but there's lots of conflict. When my brother and I were growing up, he was the athlete, the really good one, and I was not as good. And my parents went to every game he was in, and like two of mine. But I'm okay with that. Uh, so there was conflict. And I remember a time where we were wrestling, and it started just as wrestling, but somehow one of us or both of us got really angry. And we started trying to physically hurt each other as much as possible. And fortunately, we didn't succeed. But what strikes me is an hour later, I don't think either of us remembered what we were angry about or why we did it. The reason I'm saying that is family conflict happens, happens all the time. But I want to read a story about Joseph, if we could put the text up. I think all of us know about conflict, but how many of us can say that their brothers and sisters plotted to kill them and then pretty much did it, or almost? Can anyone say that? You can? Really? So, this is Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36. It's, it's a little long, but... When his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, Your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. So Jacob said, Go now, check on the welfare of your brothers and of the flocks, and bring me word. So Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph reached Shechem, a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are grazing their flocks. The man said, They left this area, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the master of dreams. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into a cistern, and say that a wild animal ate him, and then we'll see how his dreams turn out. When Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph from their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. Reuben continued, Don't shed blood. Throw him in the cistern here, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could rescue Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the special tunic that he wore. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty because there was no water in it. When they sat down to eat their food, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying spices, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not lay a hand on him. For after all, he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants passed by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. 
the Israelites then took Joseph to Egypt. Later, Reuben returned to the cistern to find that Joseph was not in it. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers, and said, The boy isn't there, and I, where can I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a young goat, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they brought the special tunic to their father and said, We found this. Determine now whether it's your son's tunic or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild animal has eaten him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. His sons and daughters stood by him to console him, but he refused to be consoled. No, he said, I will go to the grave mourning my son. So Joseph's father wept for him. In Egypt, the Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. My brother and I never got that far. And I just want to give you a little bit of background. This is a family that's been dysfunctional from the beginning. And this story is like the culmination of all of that anger and all of that conflict. If you go back in the story to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham has promised a child when he's 75 years old. Does anyone know when he got the child? Anyone? When he was 100. He waited 25 years. Halfway through, he's tired of waiting. So he and his wife come up with this plan where he'll have a child with her servant, Hagar. She has a son. That's Ishmael. Did anyone catch the Ishmaelites in the story? <laughs> Ishmael was born. Because he was born, Hagar began treating Sarah badly, even though Sarah was her owner and Hagar the slave. It was so bad that she asked Abraham to, well, she asked Abraham to kill the child, but he said he wouldn't do that. So here's conflict number one. And here's a little tear in the thread of the tapestry of this family. We move on. They have Isaac. When Isaac is old enough, he marries Rebecca. She gets pregnant. And even before she gives birth, they know there's going to be conflict because God tells them there's going to be conflict. The younger is going to be over the older, and they're going to fight. And what happens? You have two boys. You have Esau, and you have Jacob. And according to the text, they liked, well, Rachel liked Jacob. I mean, yeah, Rachel liked Jacob, and Isaac liked Esau. So there was conflict between the parents, conflict between the brothers. Jacob and Esau fought. Most of Jacob's adult life, he spent running, being afraid of his brother. They did finally reconcile, but he spent a long time afraid that his brother would kill him. And if you look in the history of Israel, Esau's descendants were the Edomites, and they were a constant conflict for the country of Israel. If you go in the minor prophets, they were so bad that when an invading army came, instead of helping their related family, they turned them in and betrayed them. So family conflict is just all over this. Does it stop there? No. Jacob decides to get married. He likes Rachel. 
he agrees to work for seven years for Rachel's father Laban as a shepherd. Seven years. Somehow, on the day of the wedding, it's not Rachel but Leah, who is not the one he wanted, so he decides to agree to work for another seven years so that he can finally marry Rachel. They get married 14 years, and then they want to have children. But only Leah has children. So there's conflict between Rachel and Leah. Then it gets so bad at one point that Rachel says, like Sarah did, why don't you have a child through my slave? So we have Abraham sleeping with Bilhah, who was Rachel's slave. She bears two sons. That's got to feel really good for Rachel. I don't have any, but now I have supposedly have two, but they're not really mine. Then Leah says, hey, he can sleep with my maid too. So he sleeps with her maid, Zilpah. Two more come out of it. So there's four of the 12 tribes of Israel come out of this conflict between Rachel and Leah. Then... Leah has two more sons, and Rachel is still childless. Six of the twelve tribes right here in this section. Finally, Rachel gives birth to Joseph, and he is the favored son. Jacob loves him. Rachel loves him. They treat him like a king. They give him this robe. Some texts say multicolor. Some texts say long the point is, this is a super fancy, really nice coat, and he's the only one who has one. So now you're seeing the conflict between Rachel and Leah embodied in Joseph. And so what does Joseph do when he's growing up? He has a dream, tells it to his brothers, says, sheaves of wheat are going to bow to mine. If you were the older brother in a family and your younger brother said, you're going to bow down to me. How would you react? Most of us would be like, yeah, no way. So they didn't like it. So then Joseph, later on, says, I had another dream. And instead of realizing from the first time that maybe it didn't go well and he shouldn't do it again, what does he do? He does it again. He again says, you're going to bow down to me. The stars in the heaven are going to bow down to me. So here's Joseph acting like a petulant brat to his brothers and basically saying, I'm going to rule over you, so you need to treat me better. And this is why in the story we read, they called him the master of dreams. In the Hebrew, the word is Baal. And if you remember the history of Israel, Baal is one of the gods that they were constantly worshiping other than God. Baal just means master or lord. So when Joseph comes in this story, his brothers say, look, it's the master of dreams or the lord of the dreams, which sounds a little too much like lord of the dance, but it's kind of funny anyway. The lord of the dreams. So when they see him, they're just filled with anger and derision. And they say, let's kill him. And it's only because the oldest child, Reuben, says, no, we shouldn't kill him. So the whole point of all this conflict, every single one of these is a little tear in the tapestry of this life. 
And when you get to the end of this story, what do you have? You have Joseph's cloak torn and bloodied. His brothers bring it to the father. They don't even say, we found Joseph's coat. They say, we found a coat. Is it Joseph's? But they don't even actually say, is it Joseph's? They say, is it your son's? And they know the whole time that it is. So Joseph sold into slavery. His father is mourning. His brothers act like they had nothing to do with it. And this story ends in about as bad a place as it can end for Joseph. But I want to say, when we look later in the story, there's a point in which Joseph finally realizes that even at its worst, that God was in this. When his brothers, some 30 years later, come to Egypt, 20, 30, I forget exactly, they come looking for food because of a famine. And they don't know it's Joseph. And when he finally reveals himself to him, he says three times, you sent me here, but God had a purpose. Three times. So in Genesis 45, he says, you sold me into slavery. And then he says, but God sent me ahead of you. Then in the very next verse, he says, God sent me ahead of you. And then again, it isn't you who sent me, but God. Somewhere between the cistern and there, Joseph saw God's hand. And he realized this was the plan from the beginning. And that at any point, if anything had gone differently, he wouldn't have been in Egypt to do what he needed to do. And that's a powerful thing. Because now all of a sudden, those dreams that he used to lord over his brothers, those dreams become something different. Because now those dreams are, I am serving you. I am God's tool to help save you. I'm not your master. I'm the one who's lifting you up from this famine and saving you. And my question in all of this that I think we need to remember did God simply react to this family's dysfunction? Was he aware of it and just allowed it to happen? Or was he in every step and was he planning it? Joseph, I think, believed at this point. He didn't when he was in the cistern. When he's in the cistern, he's probably like, well, there goes that dream. But at the end, he gets it. And what he says, this is really interesting to me, in Genesis 50. He says to his brothers, you planned evil and destruction and death. And then he turns it, and Moses, the author, does this really cool thing. He uses the exact same verb, the exact same tense. He says, you planned evil. God planned good. And he's not saying that everything is good, but he was saying good is coming out of this. And I just want to remind us of the good that actually is coming out of this, right? So what's the first good that comes out of Joseph being in Egypt? His family gets saved from a famine. That's a pretty big deal. But what's another good that comes out of it? When Joseph was thrown in the cistern, he was a bit of a brat. 
He was kind of a show-off, if you want to call it that. And he was lording it over his brothers. He was immature. He was petulant. Now look at him. He has gone through so much. He has become a different person. And he's in charge of collecting food and distributing it to the people of Egypt. But he actually says something strange. He says, I have become a father to Pharaoh. And that's what the text says. It doesn't say Pharaoh has become a father to me. It says, I have become a father to Pharaoh. He's in this position where he's helping his family, and he's able to do it. When he interprets Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh says, what should I do? And he says, you should find a trustworthy person to do all these things. And so Pharaoh says, okay, you're the one. Was he the one when he was thrown in the cistern? No. Would you have wanted him to be in charge of that as a petulant brat? No. So here, God is saving the people of Israel. He's making Joseph into a great leader who can help his people. He's obviously helping Egypt because all of this is keeping Egypt fed in the midst of a horrible seven-year famine. And I'm just amazed. He's able to look at this and say, this was God all along. Even when I was a stupid brat, even when I shared this dream to put myself above you and you decided to throw me in a cistern, here's God weaving all these things. So this tapestry, this tunic that looks torn and bloody is actually not because God planned good. And if you remember anything from this, I want you to remember, God planned good. He planned to preserve life. And he was doing it all along. There isn't a single step in this whole journey where he wasn't saying, I'm planning on preserving life. And I just, I see that kind of sovereignty and I see that kind of love in God. And it just, it kind of makes me pause. It, it just, it's sobering when you think about it. He works all things for the good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in your life is good, because I'm pretty sure Joseph and his sister isn't saying, wow, this is the best thing that ever happened. I'm pretty sure when Paul is beaten and left for dead on the road more than once, I don't think he's saying, wow, I'm so glad I got beaten today. But what they both catch is that God is still doing something good through all of this, that he's actually using everything, right? So if Joseph hadn't been imprisoned wrongfully, <laughs> he wouldn't have been the person he was, and he wouldn't have been able to lead the way he led. And so I just want us all to be open to the idea that no matter how much conflict is in your own family, how hard your life has been, that God is able and willing to do good with all of that. That he's able to take every single thing and weave it into this beautiful tapestry. We do a lot of stuff to rip it apart, to tear it to shreds. And here's God saying, nope, you know what? I'm just going to keep bringing this back together. Everything you break, I'm going to bring back. And I'm going to bring it back better. Because Joseph is better at the end. He's way better. And he's so much better that when you think about it, He's, his story starts in Genesis 36. 
pretty much the rest of Genesis is Joseph's story. We're talking a third of the entire book is Joseph and his story. And it's because of who he became. And it's because of what he allowed God to do in this process. So that instead of staying in the bitterness and instead of staying immature, he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for God in this. There's a, there's a movie version of this, a cartoon called Joseph, the King of Dreams. I don't know if anyone has ever seen it. But they have a great song, and it's a song in the movie that's playing while he's in prison. And the chorus of the song says, You know better than I, and I will let go the right to know why, because you know better than I. And in the words of Joseph, it's because you plan life. And your plan is not going to be thwarted no matter what I do. And that's what I love, that God's plan is not thwarted. All along, he keeps it together. Blessed be the reading of his word.